Florida Medical Association, helping physicians practice medicine. Welcome to the Medicine Curated Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Stapleton, CEO of the Florida Medical Association. Our guest today is the president of the Collier County Medical Society, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. Dr. Bernard has worked as a family physician for over 15 years in Florida. She graduated from the University of Florida with a degree in sociology and received her medical degree from the University of Miami. So she covers uh, Florida and Miami. And she also uh, uh, is an adjunct professor for the Florida State University College of Medicine. So we've got the trifecta there, as well as the the Nova Southeastern um, University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Uh, She completed her residency at Florida Hospital in Orlando. Most recently, Dr. Bernard has opened her own primary care practice, Gulf Coast Direct Primary Care. Uh, Dr. Bernard is very interested in encouraging primary care to improve the health of all Americans and in the growing movement of direct primary care. Uh, She's a national speaker on the topic of physician wellness and practice management. Uh, Dr. Bernard's writing has been featured in Kevin MD, Medical Economics, and the FMA's own uh, Florida Medical Magazine. In fact, her article uh, about physicians changing the course of their medical career in their medical careers, which appeared in our spring 2019 issue, won a 2020 Best Writing Award from the Florida Magazine Association. So congratulations on that. Um, she's also the author of several books, including How to Be a Rockstar Doctor, The Complete Guide to Taking Back Control of Your Life and Your Profession, and her latest book, which I'm gonna show you right here, uh, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and the Physician Assistant in Healthcare. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bernard. Uh, before we get started, um, and before we get into a discussion about your new book, tell us about yourself and your background and where you grew up and why you decided to pursue a career in medicine. I'd love to, and thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so honored to be here with you. Um, I'm a native Floridian, as you mentioned, and I actually grew up in a very small town uh, at the southern tip of Lake Okeechobee called Clewiston. It's a very rural and, and medically underserved community. Um, both of my parents are registered nurses, so I grew up hearing a lot of discussion about the medical field and always very intrigued by the stories that I would hear from them. Um, but then when I was about 12 years old, my mom developed a very severe form of mental illness that basically made her unable to work. Um, she was in and out of different hospitals, and I had to take on a lot of responsibility, including helping to raise my younger siblings. And so I saw firsthand a lot of the challenges with healthcare, especially in rural and underserved areas. I think my mom's care was definitely impacted by lack of access and, and because of uh, losing her job, we were of a lower socioeconomic status. So just getting access to healthcare was um, something that I really experienced firsthand. So I was lucky enough to win a scholarship to go to college at University of Florida. And then I got a National Health Service Corps scholarship to attend medical school at the University of Miami, which I spent uh, repaying those years uh, in Immokalee, which is another rural and underserved area here in Southwest Florida. So I did that for about six years. And then I decided I wanted to try my hand at something else. And I went, uh, I say I went to the dark side because I went from underserved work to working in a more of an affluent uh, for-profit health system. 
And what I learned from that experience was that the same challenges that I had in working in a government type federally qualified health center were almost identical to the challenges that I faced in a corporate for-profit world. So after some years, I decided I really wanted more autonomy. And so I opened my own practice, which I converted to direct primary care. And I have to tell you, I've never been happier as a doctor because I can still provide underserved work, but I also have control over how I practice. That's fantastic. And we've, we've talked a little bit about direct primary care. We had Dr. Lee Gross on a previous podcast, and that is a, a growing movement and a, and a really positive uh, development um, in, in healthcare uh, that hopefully will grow in the future. Um, so in addition to being an excellent physician, uh, you're also a prolific writer. Your latest book, uh, Patients at Risk, is dedicated to the memory, and, and I, let me get this uh, name correct, Alexis Jamal Achoa Dawkins. Is that correct? Yes. Tell us about uh, her story and what motivated you uh, to write this book. Alexis was a healthy 19-year-old college sophomore and basketball player athlete who was in perfectly good health until one day she developed sudden onset of chest pain, shortness of breath, and she fainted. Her boyfriend called 911 and an ambulance took her to the local emergency room where she was treated by the only medical professional on staff, which was a family nurse practitioner who had attended an online training program and really had very little experience. She'd only been working as a nurse practitioner for about eight months when she attended uh, Alexis. Uh, unfortunately, the nurse practitioner misdiagnosed the patient and treated her for about 11 hours with various remedies until she finally transferred her to a tertiary center where she was diagnosed correctly with pulmonary emboli in both lungs. And unfortunately, even though the correct treatment was started, it was just too late. And Alexis, who just the day before had been perfectly healthy with her whole life in front of her, died. Um, the reason that I heard about this story was that I, I joined an online group called Physicians for Patient Protection. I'm not even sure how I got added to this group. It was a few years ago, but it was doctors talking about concerns about physicians losing the ability to care for patients and being replaced by non-physician practitioners like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And I really, it wasn't so much on my radar. I had worked with non-physician practitioners when I worked out in a, a federally qualified health center. And so I had some experience, but I hadn't realized how in some parts of our country and increasingly now, physicians are being replaced and patients like Alexis, they don't have a choice in who they're seeing. In fact, Alexis was in Oklahoma, which requires physician supervision. And yet this multi-billion dollar corporation that hired her chose to put, her, uh, put a nurse practitioner in the role of an emergency physician and the patient didn't have any idea, her family didn't know. In fact, they thought they were being treated by a physician. So uh, I learned about this case among many others. And I realized that uh, patients don't know this information. In fact, a lot of doctors don't know this information. And I realized that we really needed to get it out in the public because as much as we go to our legislators and ask them to make sure that patients are being protected, we're not always seeing that happening. So I wanted to present this information so that everyone uh, just in the, in the uh, for transparency and so that people would know what what possibilities were out there and they could advocate for themselves better. Well, I'm really glad you did. And unfortunately, this case um, is, is probably one of many. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't always get the publicity. Uh, a lot of times these, um, these cases, uh, the public doesn't know about it. So thank you for 
for writing about it and for bringing this to, to the attention of the public. Um, you've extensively researched this nationwide movement, which is really what it is, to allow non-physicians, specifically nurse practitioners and physician assistants, to practice independently without any supervision from a physician. Obviously, this is a dangerous trend, one that the FMA has warned about uh, uh, over the years and, and has counseled the legislature to, to um, uh, avoid. Unfortunately, we haven't always been successful uh, in those endeavors. And like I said, it's really a nationwide movement. We're seeing uh, other states like California and others who have passed similar uh, measures to allow for independent practice. Um, and of course, this is, uh, this is bad for patient care. Uh, one of the chapters of your book is entitled, and this really caught my attention, entitled The Death of Medical Expertise. Um, what do you mean by this? And what are the negative implications that the public uh, needs to be aware of regarding this, uh, what I'll say is a, is a really bad trend in healthcare? It's a really dangerous trend, and it's also a hypocritical trend. I'll just mention, you, you said California. California recently passed a law to allow nurse practitioners to practice independently. They're required to complete 500 clinical hours before they uh, graduate. Where they In California, they also passed a law saying that physicians had to complete three full years of residency before they were allowed to practice independently, which is the equivalent of at least 15,000 hours. So uh, part of the problem is a lack of, of expertise, but also sort of a picking and choosing who you would like to be allowed to practice independently. I find that hypocritical. But the uh, title, The Death of Medical Expertise, is kind of a, a play on the book, The Death of Expertise, which was a, a popular book written a few years ago that outlines a shift in our cultural mentality towards uh, away from experts and towards a anyone can do it uh, armchair type of expertise. And in the book, we talk about something called Dunning-Kruger phenomenon, which is a uh, was described by two psychologists. And it's the idea that when you begin to study a subject before you really know anything about it, you often will assess your knowledge of the subject as being very high. So people often have a high confidence in themselves. Then as they begin to learn and really dive into the details, their confidence actually drops. And sometimes in, in medicine, we call this imposter syndrome. A lot of uh, doctors have this when we're going through our residency, we've learned so much, but yet we feel like we know nothing. And then as we learn more, our confidence slowly rises, but Often it never gets to the level that it was in the beginning before we realized how much it was that we didn't know. So we run into this problem of not knowing what you don't know. So in medicine, I use ob obstetrics as a good example because when, uh, when women are giving birth, um, most of the time everything goes great and you have to attend thousands and thousands of births before statistically you're going to see those really dangerous and rare but severe outcomes that you really better know what to do to save the life of the mother and the baby. And that's why it takes so many hours. And experts have found that it takes 10,000 hours to gain mastery of any subject. And that could be from chess to athletics to medicine. And that's been shown over and over again. So the idea that anyone can do it, you can YouTube something, um, that's the problem that we're seeing now. But uh, what those people don't realize is that there's so much more to the subject and that most of the time everything will probably be okay. But occasionally, in the rare case that something does go wrong, if you're not prepared for that, then it can cause someone to die. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So what can the public do to educate themselves? You know, the, the legislature has, has let us down. Uh, public policymakers have let us down uh, in terms of, of really uh, looking at this from, from the standpoint of, of patient safety. Um, and as you said, you know, uh, a lot of times, um, you know, things are going to be okay. It's just these situations where there are misdiagnoses because of uh, lack of uh, qualifications um, that lead to, you know, really terrible outcomes. Um, but what can patients do to sort of educate themselves uh, about the differences between medical doctors and nurse practitioners and physician assistants? You know, what questions should patients be asking about the qualifications of the person that's taking care of them? You know, if they go into an urgent care center or a, a retail clinic, uh, what questions can they ask to, to make sure that they're actually seeing the most qualified uh, person um, uh, in the room? You know, patients really do have to make the effort to educate themselves. And it's not easy these days because there's a lot of propaganda and there's a lot of marketing out there. For example, the American Association of Nurse Practitioners has a campaign uh, that says, you know, we choose NPs where it tells patients that NPs are just as good. The PAs have one. It's called Your PA Can. So if you open up USA Today, you'll see a full page spread on the back saying your PA can handle it. So patients don't always know they're getting this different messaging. So patients need to do the research. And fortunately, Americans, we like to research things. We like to read reviews and we like to find out what's going on. So this is an, another area that patients really need to do their research. Our book will explain what the differences are between the professions. People need to know the abbreviations. It's kind of interesting because sometimes the shorter the abbreviations, the more experienced the professional. For a physician, you're going to see MD or DO. For a nurse practitioner, you may see a long string of letters uh, that may you may not even realize. So they need to know abbreviations. And then I think it's really important that patients ask if their if their non-physician professional is um, being supervised or not by a physician. In about half the states of the union and in the entire Veterans Administration, nurse practitioners are not required to be supervised. So patients should ask, are you supervised? Or if not, is there a physician that you would check with if you weren't sure about what was going on? Uh, patients, if their care, if they're declining or they have a new problem or they're getting worse, they really should not be afraid to ask for a physician and to even demand a physician. For example, in the case of Alexis, there was no physician on staff, but if she or her family had demanded a physician, then maybe she would have been transferred sooner or a physician would have been called in. Um, the, the science shows that when nurse practitioners and physician assistants work together with physicians, patients can get great care. But the reality is that there are no credible scientific studies that show that nurse practitioners or PAs, when they're practicing independently, that they are safe and effective. I mean, it's making a big assumption to say that, well, if they can work fine on, with, uh, with a physician, that they can do the same thing on their own. That hasn't been shown. So we need to really, uh, we need more studies to find out if that is safe. But in the meantime, a physician should always be involved in supervising all patients' care. Well, that, that's great advice, and, and you're right. It is confusing. There's a lot of, uh, of studies out there that, that are uh, confusing for people and, uh, and probably misleading, certainly. Um, and so uh, the advice that you've given is, is terrific. And hopefully, um, you know, what we, what we try to promote at the FMA, and, and I think most uh, uh, medical associations, um, uh, we believe that physician-led care is is the way to go. 
Um, certainly, um, uh, nurse practitioners and PAs can play an important role, and, and we don't want to uh, ever, um, you know, demean their uh, qualifications because they, they certainly can play and do play an important role in the delivery of healthcare, but they're not physicians and they shouldn't be leading care and they shouldn't be doing things that they're not qualified to do. So, so our advice is, is always um, uh, ask uh, uh, if the, the nurse or the, the PA is being supervised and, and if, they're, if your care is being led by a physician, that's very important. Um, so you've also kind of switched gears here. You've also written extensively about physician wellness and, and that is a, a very important topic um, what are the most important things that physicians can do to improve their own well-being and restore really the joy of practicing medicine and taking care of patients? And that's really so important. And actually, even the book, although we talk a lot, mostly it's about nurse practitioners and physician assistants, we also talk about how you know physicians have been involved in this rise and this change in the healthcare system because of the fact that medicine is going into a more increasingly corporate mentality. In fact, more physicians now are owned by a corporation than own their own practice. And I get that because you feel like, and, and I've been there too, where you feel like I can't manage all of these requirements and all of these things that I have to do and practice medicine on my own. I need to have a third party kind of take over all that business aspect so that I can just be a doctor. But unfortunately, that's backfired. And I, I get the thinking. And like I said, I've been there. But what, what you find very quickly is that when you relinquish that control, you lose your autonomy. And it's a very uh, insidious way that that happens little by little. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself with no voice whatsoever. And you find yourself actually being considered as quite replaceable, if not by another physician, then by a non-physician practitioner. And that's really the crux of the issue is this corporatization. So I think for physician wellness, we have to seek a way to gain back our own control and our autonomy. Ideally, if you can open your own practice in something like a direct care model, which can be done with specialists as well. But if you do need to work for someone, for example, if you need to work in a hospital setting, obviously it's you're limited in what you can do, especially since uh, physician owned hospitals are not something that we are able to do right now with the current law. But if you are working for a system, then you know, try to be a contract employee if you can, or work locums or something in which you're not necessarily a W-2 employee because that's where you lose the most control. I always say too, that physicians need to realize that although this medicine is a calling, it's also a job and you shouldn't be afraid to walk away from a bad job, not from medicine necessarily, but we shouldn't catastrophize if, if we're working in a bad situation we need to realize that we have options and we can always get out and do something different. So doctors often find themselves feeling trapped or we have this perfectionism, this fear of failure, and we need to use resources to help ourselves out of that trap because that's what just leads us into this run of the mill, cog in the wheel type mentality that I think leads so many doctors to burnout. Uh, we need to remember to spend time with our colleagues because sometimes you feel very isolated, especially right now with the pandemic. Uh, but you talk to your friends, talk to your colleagues. You realize that we are all in this together and uh, uh, make sure that you're taking time for yourself and hobbies, recreation, spending time with friends and family. Medicine is not everything in your life. It's very important, of course, but it's just a piece of our lives and we need to keep that in perspective. 
that that's really great advice and it, it's really it is disheartening when you see physicians uh feel like they don't have any options uh, or or feel like victims and that you know that that is heartbreaking certainly and so hopefully you know physicians understand that that there are options out there that if they're in a bad situation uh a work environment that that's not conducive uh to to what they uh want professionally you know there are options that they can pursue and and, and uh hopefully um, hopefully they understand their value. Uh, physicians, uh, you know, you can't have a hospital without physicians. Uh, our healthcare system doesn't work without physicians. So, um, you know, we want to always uh, make sure that physicians know that they do have options, that they do have value, and uh, and your advice is is, is very good. Um, so you're currently the president of the Collier County Medical Society. Uh, you've been involved um, at the FMA at various levels. Um, you're a graduate of our Physician Leadership Academy, and you currently serve on the FMA's Committee on Physician Wellness. Um, so my question is, what's your message for physicians about the importance of being a member of organized medicine through the FMA and the County Medical Society? You know, the only other person that really understands what you've been through as a physician is another physician. And of course, we all have different specialties and we've gone through different parts of our training, but that core training, that medical school experience, the intern year, residency, it's a bond that brings us together. And I think that it's something that's really important. We often, uh, I think it's hard to get physicians to agree on things. Uh, one person told me a quote that I used in the book because I liked it, that it so much, they said, that doctors are like sharks. You know, we attack each other, we smell blood in the water, but we need to be more like orca, which are, uh, they help each other, li they lift each other up. And when a pack of orca are swimming together, there's nothing that can overcome them. So we need to act more like that. And when we stick together, we can accomplish so much more. If you're just one person in a corporation, you're not really going to be able to make much of an impact. But if all physicians come together, for example, in my community a few years ago, uh, there was some problems with our local hospital. And when all the physicians came together and rallied the community, they were able to effect change that, frankly, I didn't even think was possible. And when I saw that, I realized how much power we have, but it only can be enacted if we all come together and we work together as one. We have differences, of course, but we have that core common bond. And the most important thing, I think, for all of us is that really, it's our commitment to patients and physicians sacrifice so many years and so much of our lives so that we really can be the best to treat patients. And so we need to come together so that we can ensure that patients get the best care possible. Well, that's, you know, that's a great message. And um, although, as you point out, physicians are competitive and, and there are certainly differences, uh, whether you know, you're talking about differences between specialties or your there's generational differences. Certainly we have a split between physicians that are independent and physicians that are in an employed setting. But at the end of the day, um, they're all physicians. And uh, by sticking together, uh, you know, their voice can be much stronger. And, and you've you've given an example of a local uh, situation down in Naples that uh, is a classic example of physicians sticking together. Uh, and, and, you know, by doing that, uh, uh, physicians can, can make sure that, uh, that they're much stronger. And at the end of the day, you have more in common with one another uh, than you do uh, in terms of differences. And, and you've pointed that out. And that's a great message to end on today. 
Um, you know, Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us today. Um, and thank you for everything you do to promote physician-led healthcare. Um, here's your book. Uh, why don't you tell our audience uh, how they can purchase a copy of this book? I'm uh, about halfway through it, and, and um, I'm taking my time because uh, as you read through here, you have to go back and reread. I'm taking notes and, and, and underlining things, and uh, this is a great, um, uh, a great thing that you've done. And uh, so tell us how... How, uh, how people can get their own copy, how they can purchase a copy of the book. Yeah, the book has over 500 citations. It's been meticulously researched because we wanted my co-author, Naran Al-Ajba, who's a pediatrician, and I, we wanted to make sure that uh, we were being as factual as possible. And I think uh, some people are a little uh, concerned about the title being a little sensational, patients at risk. Uh, but the reality is that patients are at risk from the corporate healthcare system that abuse physicians as much as they abuse non-physician practitioners. So don't get afraid of the title. The book is really um, not, uh, it's, it's not a mean book. It's actually written, I think, with kindness towards all medical professionals. And really what it is, is just a factual uh, assessment of the situation. So again, it's called uh, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available on Amazon.com, both in paperback and Kindle, and it's available at BarnesandNoble.com as well. Great. Well, well please uh, get a copy, uh, read it, um, whether you're a physician. I think there's a lot in here. As you said, it's meticulously researched. It's only 180 pages, but there's a lot of citations. You can go back and look and, and, and read the, the uh, different uh, uh, things that you quote and... Um, uh, so like I said, it's it's a great read. Um, it's an important read if you're a physician. And more importantly, if you're, if you're a patient, you're concerned about uh, the quality of healthcare in our country and you want to educate yourself, uh, this is a good place to start. So thank you again. Uh, have, a, have a great day. And, and, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Florida Medical Association, helping physicians practice medicine.